Ron Royce is a fellow at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, is one of the world's leading authorities on information risk management. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of Information Security Media Group, and I'm pleased to be speaking once again with Ron Ross, this time as part of our continuing series on careers interviews with leading IT security and risk management professionals. Welcome, Ron. Hello, Eric. It's always good to be with you. Your job at NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology, primarily deals with creating guidance around information risk management. What about risk management that excites you? To me, it's one of the greatest career opportunities for any young person today that's looking to get into the field. Risk management and its related computer security work that we do at NIST, it really combines uh, so many interesting and challenging disciplines that uh, are on the forefront of, of really difficult problems the nation is confronting now. Such as? For example, the, the continuing types of cyber attacks that we're seeing and, and the fact that uh, they're still occurring. And we're stopping a lot of them, but yet there are, are a significant number that are still getting through. That, that presents a challenge. We have to ask the questions, why are these things continuing to happen? What things can we do from a scientific or engineering perspective to really lock down the infrastructure so it's safer for, for customers, both in the public and private sector, to use in their day-to-day -day operation? Uh, that's really what excites me because these things are not solved problems and uh, they're important. People working in your organization with information risk management, what are some of the skill sets that are brought to those jobs? Well, I think risk management is a very broad uh, field. I like to think of our information security field as bringing together the disciplines of computer science, computer engineering, uh, mathematics, if you're into cryptography and, and those kinds of things. The engineering disciplines and science all coming together to build stronger, more penetration-resistant systems. This gets to the way the code is developed, the software, the firmware, the hardware, how the systems are put together, and all of those things. I use the analogy of building a bridge or building an airplane. In those areas, we've had the science of physics and civil engineering and engineering in general used for decades to make sure that the bridges that we cross over, are, we have confidence in those and, and the airplanes we fly in, we have confidence in the, in the ability to get in the airplane and go from point A to point B. These are the kinds of things that I believe we have to kind of bring back into the culture and really focus on the disciplines that can allow us to have systems and networks that are inherently more secure. The core, at least what people outside of this see of your work, are, are the special publications and other kinds of publications you present. Is everybody on your staff trained to, to write, to communicate, or are there certain people who do that? Or how's that work? Well, I think everybody on the, the NIST staff, it's, it's kind of in the DNA, being able to um, have the background in information security or computer science or whatever the, the disciplines uh, that we need to, to bring these publications to our customers. But uh, being able to communicate uh, important concepts is really critical to everybody who, who works at NIST, whether you're in the chemistry lab or the physics lab and you're writing technical papers, research papers, or conducting you know, cutting-edge research to the folks in the computer security division who are looking at different ways that we can help our customers protect their systems. Being able to communicate not just in writing, but producing the publication so you communicate your ideas clearly, concisely, and you get the message across, but also being able to go out and do outreach. We do a tremendous amount of outreach going to almost every federal agency. We go out to private sector organizations, Fortune 500 companies, universities, to try to get the message out to as many people as possible. I use the term winning the hearts and minds. You have to be able to do that to get get people on board so they can use the guidance to the, to the maximum extent uh, possible. People may not realize it, but you had a career in the military. You're a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy. Why did you want to attend West Point? 
I've always been fascinated by the military academies in general, whether it was Annapolis or West Point or the Air Force Academy. What compelled me to want to attend the academy is it was service to country. I mean, it was one of those things that, and this was during the Vietnam War, I go back uh, quite a ways, where you was doing something that was larger than yourself, getting a, a really good education. As back in those days, they actually pay you to go to the service academies, and then you have an obligation of five years to serve in the military. I spent my five years in the, in the Army, and I decided I really enjoyed what I was doing in the military, so I stayed on for a full career. The Army is almost like your second family. Even today, I've been out of the military about 20 years now, but I still consider the Army a, a family. It's, it's lifelong friendships. It's relationships. And it's just being part of an institution that has been around for you know, over 200 years serving the citizens of the country. And that, that's really what drove me. When you started there, what kind of military career did you envision for yourself? And how did that turn out? I didn't have any expectations. I was appointed to, to West Point uh, from a congressman in Southern California. I really spent most of my high school years on the beach and going to high school and doing all the things that uh, high school kids like to do, playing football and all those fun things. When I got to the military academy, it was really a culture shock. It's a very big transformation. In order to be a, a leader, you have to know how to follow. So you go through this transformation, and you really don't have a lot of expectations when you're there about what your military career is going to be like. When you're at the academy, they, they used to take all the cadets around to the different military posts around the country. So I went to the infantry school, the armor school, the field artillery school, the signal school, and you spend a little bit of time in each one of those areas, and they give you a taste of what it's like to be in that particular branch. When you get to the your senior year, you actually choose the branch that you uh, want to go in, and it's done by class ranking. And, and the, the branch that I chose was the infantry, and I went to airborne school, and so I started out uh, on the ground uh, being a platoon leader for a mechanized uh, infantry. Uh, platoon at Fort Hood, Texas. That was back in uh, 1973. And then from there, my career uh, took a couple of different turns. I went into the Acquisition Corps uh, because they wanted military officers to be more involved in computers. They could see the computer revolution coming, and they wanted their officers to be prepared for that. And that's when I got into the initial computer work within the Army. And from there, I you know, got into the computer security world later on. During your career, uh, as you got into computers, you received two graduate degrees, including a PhD? Yes. While I was in the Army, the Army has great educational programs, and they will send officers to get uh, advanced degrees. And the Army had a real significant need at that point in time for officers to understand more about what was called back then, I think it's still called artificial intelligence. They were building an autonomous vehicle program. So when you see these robots now that go around and do explosive ordnance type work and these robots that are in the vehicles that are moving on the, on the battlefield, some of these are autonomous. In other words, they don't have people inside. They move just with the machine itself and, and the intelligence that are driven by the computer. The Army wanted to have a core of officers that understood artificial intelligence and robotics, and that's the degree they offered me in the, the school that I attended was the Naval Postgraduate School. About what year was this? My master's degree uh, was from 1980 to 82, and then uh, I came back. I had a, a tour down at Fort Hunter Liggett, which was a weapons testing center in California after I graduated the first time. Then they, they sent me back to the Navy school to get my doctorate in artificial intelligence, robotics, and computer science. Uh, I graduated in 1989. 
The intent was to go to an Army program office that was building these autonomous vehicles. But as all things happen, and, and this is one of the things I always tell young people, you have to be flexible and agile in your career because you never know what's going to happen. My assignment that I was supposed to go to in 1989 was not quite ready yet. The, the person that was in that job hadn't rotated out. I had to pick another area. So this is when I decided that I would try the uh, National Security Agency. And I had no experience in computer security at that point, but I did have what I call the fundamentals of computer science from my PhD and my master's degree. That's when I went to NSA in 1990, and that's my first exposure to the really uh, fundamental principles of computer security. And what was it that attracted you to computer security? It's the challenge. It's the, the difficult uh, nature of the problems and the importance of getting it right. We didn't really know back in 1990 the extent of how important computer security would be. It was always considered important, but I think what's happened over the last couple of decades is we've had such an explosion of information technology. The power of the technology and the fact that it is so affordable for, for the vast majority of people it is now pervasive. One of the things that's happened, and, and I talk about this a lot today in, in our publications and in the speaking engagements, is this thing about complexity. We built such an incredibly complex IT infrastructure with all these devices that being able to secure those in a way that allows people to manage the risk of doing their day-to-day -day operations in business, whether it's on the personal side or the public sector side, that is a, an incredibly difficult and challenging set of problems. Getting it right is critical because it relates directly back to our national and our economic security interests, as, as most people talk about today. What was your job at the NSA? Well, I started out there as a deputy division chief. Um, a lot of your listeners out there may remember there's a, a series of computer security publications called the Rainbow Series. They were different colors publications dealing with different topics. Uh, there was an operating system security book, a network security book, and these publications were produced by the National Computer Security Center, which was one of the organizations within the NSA. And so I got there and I, I was again in the military at the time. I had just gotten promoted to lieutenant colonel and I was a deputy division chief. When the division chief moved out, uh, I was made the division chief of, of that division. Uh, that's what I did for the three years I, I was there. Listeners to our interviews know that you're a big fan of NASCAR. What link, if anything, is there between a love of stock car racing and the interest in information risk management? There's a very close link in my view. For those of your listeners who are not NASCAR fans, the, the NASCAR world is driving these very high-performance race cars around a track at 200 miles an hour, and the cars are sometimes a couple of inches from these big cement barriers that are around the track that prevent the cars from going out into the stands and injuring fans if they ever crash. There was a very serious accident of Dale Earnhardt Sr. about a dozen years ago. He was killed at Daytona when his car hit the wall at 200 miles an hour and broke his neck. NASCAR, they live in the world of that kind of threat. That is their threat model. It's also the model that puts people in the seats because people like to see the cars going faster on the track. So they didn't wring their hands about the threat and say, oh, we can't operate in this kind of an environment. They decided to design some technology that would protect the driver and prevent uh, drivers from breaking their neck. And that was the, what they call the Hans device, the head and neck safety device. This is the analogy I like to use for our cybersecurity world is that we will never be able to stop all the cyber 
under attack, but we can we can strengthen our systems and our networks by building stronger, more penetration-resistant software, firmware systems, and applications by applying best practices. You know, just like the NASCAR driver gets in that car and they have steel-reinforced doors and they have all these safety devices, the suit they wear and the Hans device, we can take our data, which is processed, stored, and transmitted in these systems, and we can put an infrastructure around that data that is a lot more secure based on good science and engineering practices that sometimes get applied today, but not always. How do you feel you made a difference? I look back over the 12 years uh, that I've been working on the FISMA project. It's been a long, long road. Uh, we started from really from ground zero. I believe that we've given our customers a, a very, very powerful tool set now that they can use to build security programs. That's not to say that everyone's going to build the same type of program. There, there may be different things that, um, that agencies do using our guidelines and our standards and all the things that they bring to the, uh, to the fight. Having those tools available and being able to have a disciplined and structured process, I think that's the thing that I would focus on. The risk management framework provides that discipline and structured process so you can select the right controls, the right security controls to do the job that needs to be done based on the mission and the business operations that you're responsible for, the environment in which your organization operates, and maybe even the technologies that you uh, apply. That is a body of work now that is there, and it's going to continue to improve and evolve over time. All of our publications in the, the Joint Task Force and the FISMA pubs are these living documents that will continue to grow, to improve, based on our understanding of the problem, our customers' feedback. And so that's what gives me the greatest satisfaction. Have we solved all the problems? No. They'll continue to, to be out there and be challenging, but we've made a significant progress in the area of providing the, the fundamental tools that need to be used to, uh, to do a better job of protecting our critical systems and networks. You've had a government career with the military in this of, uh, I guess, about uh, 40 years. Do you still have dreams regarding your career? I do. In fact, um, probably next year I'm going to be uh, – transitioning into an area that I'm, I'm currently working on, but not, uh, not full-time. I think you remember not too long ago, we released uh, one of our special publications. It's in Graph now. It's the 800-160 uh, document. Uh, that is a systems security engineering publication. So one of my uh, dreams and goals now uh, is to take the body of work that we've completed at NIST during the FISMA uh, years, the last 12 years, and integrate those security best practices into the mainstream organizational processes that people use every day within the, their federal agencies or the private sector organizations. This is the, the life cycle problem. You, you might have heard people talk about baking it in or building it in. In fact, that's part of our federal strategy. Build it right, then continuously monitor. I would like to uh, start uh, in 2015 and beyond, focusing on how do we take the body of work that we've completed and integrating that into the life cycle. When stakeholders or customers first define what their system requirements are, we have the security best practices right there in an integrated form in that system lifecycle process or in that engineering process 
or in the acquisition process or part of the enterprise architecture, the security doesn't become kind of an isolated activity that is in an office down the hall with a little sign over the door saying cybersecurity team. They are distributed amongst all the important organizational activities and they can really influence how those systems are built the kinds of protections that absolutely have to go in early in the life cycle and we can't put in at the end of the life cycle. So that's really where I'd like to focus. Uh, and there's a lot of work to be done there. And I'm really excited about the potential for that to go forward uh, in 2015. Well, it's exciting that gold guys like uh, us can still have our dreams. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Ron. Thank you, Eric. It's good to be with you again. I've been speaking with Ron Rost of NIST. I'm Eric Chabro.